Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, quick reminder about the Other People app. This podcast has its own app. It's the Other People app. It's free. Get it wherever you get your apps. Go get the Other People app. It's free. It doesn't cost a thing. Once you have the Other People app on your device, you will have access to the most recent 50 episodes of this program for free. It's the best and easiest way to listen. You get the app on your device. The most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. Uh, And then if you want to get at the deep archives, if you want to hear every single episode, you just sign up for premium right there within the app. It's very easy. It's very cheap. It's a great way to support the show. You can hear my conversations with uh, scores of writers, dozens of writers, people like Tom Parada, Edward Jodantica, Cheryl Strayed, Susan Orlean, uh, Jess Walter, Hilton Niles, Ben Fountain, Tao Lin, Jesmine Ward, Edgar Oliver, Sheila Hetty, Leila Lalami, Cynthia Bond. The list goes on. The Other People app, it's free. Get that app. Sign up for premium. That would be great. All right, let's get going. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is two people talking. This is available via the internet. Hello, I'm Brad Listy. How's it going? Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm here in Los Angeles, Los Angeles, California, land of no water. Uh, I've got Matt Johnson on the program today. Matt Johnson, author of the novel Loving Day. Perhaps you saw it featured last week on the cover of the New York Times book review. Very pleased uh, to have had the chance to talk to Matt. He was just here. And I thought I would, uh, I thought I would deliver a Sunday show. I have a little time. I can't do a Sunday show every week. That's kind of what I'm finding out, especially with this new baby on the way. I feel like schedule, uh, schedule wise, it's not possible every week, but this week it is. And, uh, I feel like Matt's kind of having a moment, uh, and I wanted to get his episode up so you guys could hear it. And he was also requested. I had, uh, several listeners request him as a guest and, uh, he happened to be in town. Things worked out. Uh, he was just here and we had a great talk. So that's coming up in just a second. Uh, today's episode is sponsored by tweaked audio. Do you need some new earbuds? Do you need some new, uh, headphones right now? You can get 33% off of any purchase over at tweakedaudio.com. Just enter the offer code other people, O T H E R P P L. I should also add, 
Uh, if you go to get the other people app, O T H E R P P L, when you're searching in the uh, app store, O T it's that, that's the way it's spelled. O T H E R P P L, all one word. Other people with Brad Listy, get that app. So uh, you know that the baby is coming. It's starting like when, since we hit June. I feel like things have shifted in my brain, starting to get real. I can, I'm starting, I feel like I have an internal clock now where like, whereas before it was more of an abstraction. Now it feels more concrete. It feels like something I need to prepare for. And it's kind of funny because I've been through this before and I've obviously had months to, uh, prepare. I've had months to watch my wife's belly grow and to, you know, see the physical reality of the baby in ultrasound, uh, imagery and all, you know, all the rest, but even so it remains kind of an abstraction until you get to this point. And especially once the baby's here, somehow it's still unbelievable. So yesterday I decided out, you know, I had a little bit of a, a little bit of time. I'm like, I'm going to assemble the crib. We had the crib in the garage. I got to assemble this thing. I want to make sure we get the nursery functional. I, I need our, I need our system of uh, child uh, care to be functional. Obviously, my daughter's room is all taken care of. I need my son's room to be operational. We've got to have a changing table. We've got to have a, uh, you know all the things that you need to have, just so that uh, you know. God forbid if he's born uh, weeks early, we can function. So I get the crib uh, out of the garage. I'm I'm assembling it, and it turns out as the way uh, in the way that these things often do that I'm missing like one screw, one crucial screw without which the crib cannot stand. Uh, well, I guess it could stand, but it wouldn't, I wouldn't feel right about it. You're not going to put your kid's crib together and leave a crucial screw missing. Like, Oh, you know, if it collapses while he's in it, no big deal. So I found myself, uh, frustrated driving around from hardware store to hardware store in search of a particular kind of screw. I managed to find it. I assembled the crib felt a sense of small triumph still a lot to do but you know we're getting there and uh you know moments ago uh, earlier this morning i was watching my daughter i was setting up uh for matt uh here in uh, the garage and i had my daughter with me and i thought i would interview her as she's now just weeks away from becoming a big sister it's always funny to get a kid on the microphone or at least it is for me so uh, here is uh here's a small conversation i had with my daughter evan about uh you know, uh, all that's happening. And I thought, uh, I thought I would share it with you. So here she is. How you doing? Good. You excited to be a big sister? Yes. When's your baby brother going to be born? August 2nd. You think that's going to be the day? That's the due date, but you think he's going to come sooner? Uh, maybe. What are you going to do? Like you're going to have a little brother and he's going to need like some of our time he might want to play with some of your toys. Are you going to be okay with that? Yes. But I have girl toys, not boy toys. Yeah, but he might like your stuffed animals. Like, but not Chicky Bok. Not Chicky Bok? You're not going to share Chicky? No. Why? Only when he's older. So what kind of big sister are you going to be? What What are you going to do as a big sister with your little brother? Are you going to be gentle and nice to him? Do you have a trash can? Do I have a trash can? Yeah, here. You're going to be gentle? Yeah. You're going to hit him? No, no, definitely no. You're going to yell at him? No. Are you going to steal his shoes? 
No, those will not fit me, Brad. Oh, really? Okay. And then are you going to push him in the stroller? Yes. Are you going to feed him? Yeah. Are you going to change his poopy diapers? Uh, no. You're I'm not? going to change his pee-pee diapers, not poo. Oh, pee-pee but not poo. Why not poo? Because poo is disgusting. Oh, no. You said a bad word. What did I say? Oh, okay. It's all right on the podcast. You can say poo in the garage. Okay. Um, so you don't you you think your brother's going to come on August second, or you think he's going to arrive sooner? We still haven't uh, really nailed this down. I think he's going to come a little bit sooner. You do. Mommy's belly's pretty big, right? Yeah. <laughs> um. All right. Like what else? Anything else you have? Any other thoughts you have on being a big sister that you want to share with the world? Are you afraid of anything about being a big sister? What? That I might fall into the trash can. What do you mean? Like the, the diaper trash can? Yeah. Why would you fall into the diaper? <laughs> because my baby brother might be crying and he might kick me by accident. And then uh, I'll fall into the diaper trash can. And what are you going to do if like you're you want to play with me? But your baby brother is crying, and he needs to be fed, and I have to go feed him. What are you going to do? I'm going to just play by myself. You are, and you're going to be okay with that? Yeah. You're not, I'll you're play not gonna... with tiles, or play with my blocks, or play with my Legos, or drive to Grammy and Pops' house. Oh, really? You're going to drive? No. Who's going to drive you? Mommy. Oh, okay. Uh, what are you going to do today? I'm gonna go see a horse race. Oh right, you're going out to Santa Anita. You're going to the track today. What? You're going to the track to the horse track. I know, but I'm gonna see the horses race. Are you gonna bet? Are you gonna place a bet? Well, I'm gonna bet for sugar plum fairies. Oh, really? there's a horse named Sugar Plum Fairies. No. If there was, I said. Oh, okay. Well, have fun at the track today. I'm going to be here. Okay, I'm going to turn on my listening ears. Okay, uh... Can you say goodbye to everybody? Goodbye, listeners. Goodbye, listeners. Goodbye, listeners. Oh, yeah, what are we going to name your brother? We haven't figured it out yet. Your mom River! And I, you think we should name him River? Yes. <laughs> um, all right. And then, uh, any final words? Uh, do you have chocolate in your house? Okay. <laughs> Uh, there it is, guys. That's my uh, my daughter, Evan. She's four, going on five. And uh, I think she's going to be okay. I mean, they tell you that, that when you bring a new sibling into the house, there's always an adjustment period. I think she's going to handle it fine. She seems to be excited. Uh, but, of course, we'll have to see what happens once he's actually here. I will keep you posted. And I won't overdo it. I know it's like when people show you photos of your ki- of their kids. I realize... I, you know, I interview her periodically on this show. I think I've done it a couple of times throughout the pregnancy just to track her progress, get her thoughts. It's also sort of cute. Come on, it's a little cute. It's kind of cute. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, 
and The Occasional Triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, my guest once again is Matt Johnson. I think we should just get going with the interview. Uh, had a great time talking with him. Such a pleasure to have him here and to catch him at this moment when uh, you know his career is really starting to take off. I mean, it was taking off with Pim, but now uh, it feels like it's next level. And uh, just a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. This is Matt Johnson, and his novel, One More Time, is called Loving Day. Yeah. Front page of the New York Times book review. Yeah, man. I, I, I mean, I assumed I was going to die before something like that would happen. So how, did, what, how did you find out? Uh, I found out in a great way. I found out through a, uh, a wordless email with an attachment with the picture of the, of the book review. From your? From my editor. Okay. And, 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 uh, and we found out because somebody randomly was walking the, the floor of BEA and said to uh, Julie Growl, you know, one of the heads of Speak on Growl, did you see this? And, uh, and she saw it and everybody freaked out and they took a picture and sent it to me. And, you know, I was thinking lately, there was nothing to say. Just the picture says it all. That's all. Yeah. I mean, what are you yeah. going to add to that? What can you add? <laughs> so, you know, it, for me to like, uh, you know, I'm an old man now, basically. And I've been writing since I was a young man. And I barely got reviewed the first 10 years of my career. I, I, I didn't get a New York Times review of any kind um, until the last novel. So and how many have you written? I've written four novels. I've written four graphic novels, I think, and I wrote a book of nonfiction. And you illustrate as well. You're, you have, oh no, I don't. No. I can't, no, it would be really sad. It'd be Matt Johnson stick. Fi- okay, rest. okay. No, I write the scripts, and then uh, I work with an illustrator, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, when I do comics, so uh, yeah, those. I mean, really, like my first book i got a washington post review but that was kind of it as far as major paper and on the second novel i didn't get any and i thought my career my literary career was basically kind of you know done well yeah because you know the second book it's a there's a pressure on that one it's supposed to outperform the first you're supposed to get more reviews and not less right yeah and so in and and uh, it was basically uh i've never seen anybody have a late career um breakthrough I just hadn't seen it. I hadn't lived long enough, I guess, to see that. I'm sure it happened, but I didn't see it. And I saw, like, other people who, uh, you know, other writers, particularly other writers of color, coming out and and breaking out, like, immediately my age. Like, first Juno Diaz um, blew up, and then, um, you know, uh, other people, Colson Whitehead, and, you know, I heard stories that, you know, uh, this woman, Sadie Smith, coming over from London, and and then ZZ Packer. So, you know, my idea of like how it works is that if it if they're going to like recognize your work, it's going to happen immediately. And if they don't, you're going to get put into this kind of lower tier for the rest of your your life. And lower, by lower tier, I mean less people are going to be looking at your work, not that the work isn't as good. Right. So I'm, that was my assumption. And, um, you know, and I really like hit an ego wall on that. You get depressed. Oh, God, man, dude, <laughs> I went to reading. My editor was there. 
I went to this reading in Brooklyn and uh, it was when the second book had failed completely. Like it, fa- it failed in such a like an amazing way. It didn't fail because the actual book, because nobody read the book. Right. Right. <laughs> like, so it couldn't possibly have no, failed. It wasn't on, a on critical failure. It was a non-existence failure. So, cause, and, but what I mean by that is that it just wasn't in the bookstores. It wasn't in Barnes Noble. It wasn't in Borders. The indies were really struggling, and and you know a few of them had it, but mostly they didn't because they didn't know who I was, and nobody else did. And and it wasn't reviewed, so it really kind of almost didn't exist. And it was you know I I still love that book, um, but it 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 just wasn't out there. So I was freaking out about this because you know it's it, when you have a book, it's kind of like you're throwing a party, right? And like the the book comes out. And your house is just all ready for the party and you got your dip out and everything. But you, there's a moment before every party where you panic and go, wait a minute, what if nobody shows up? Right, right. You know what I mean? <laughs> and like the biggest party and the worst party, they all have that same moment. And so I had that moment and then nobody showed up. Yeah. Which, you know, when you work on these things for three, four years and then nobody shows up. Or eight or nine. Yeah, right. It's heartbreaking. So, uh, you know, I went to this reading in Brooklyn at the end of it. Um, I think it was it was a reading for Donnell Alexander, and he'd done this big, um, really uh, smart kind of uh, event night where all these different people were reading, and there was music, and it was it was lovely. But I went, and as I read, I ripped the pages out of the book, like one by one, and just dropped them on the floor, out of a very nice hardcover, and just ripped them out. And in my head, I was like, I'm ripping these out because I'm never reading from this book again. This book is dead, you know. And that, and I. It's a little dramatic, right? Yeah, but I wasn't even trying to be dramatic. It was just like it was one of those moments where I was having my 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 breakdown, like on stage. <laughs> it just happened to me on stage. Like I wouldn't have my breakdown at, at home, but I was there, so it worked out. And uh, you know, my editor at the time saw it, and he was like, "You just seem like a lunatic." Like I just thought this guy's going to go off, and you know, I'm never going to hear of him again. And and oddly enough, later he became my editor. He wasn't at the time. Just, oh, so he was just there watching. He was there in the crowd, yeah. And he saw this performance. Yeah, Chris Jackson is uh, is uh, the best editor I've ever worked with, and and um, for me, and uh, just um, just a, a wonderful you know editor. And you know, I want to get to that, but I want to finish like this uh, this low point because yeah. I think there are a lot of people. Uh, who listen to this show who might uh, have a similar oh, yeah. feeling. No one's ever going to read my stuff. I'm never going to break through. Yeah. Well, the thing is, what, what, then what do you do after that? Yeah. Right? Because um, cause I, I had to say, okay, my worst nightmares happened. Nobody's looking at my stuff. Um, does that mean I stop? And, uh, you know, no, because I'm a writer. I, at that one, my expectations, like, it was, it was good. It was good in the sense that it burned a lot of my ego down. You know, and the ego gets in the way, not just of you as a person, but also you as an artist. Right. And so uh, it burned a lot of it down. And then at that point, I was like, okay, almost no one is probably going to see these books um, that I'm working on, but I still have to make them. I still have to do them. So why? Because uh, because I'm going to die (laughs) and I want to look back. I want to be in that that senior moment before the exit. And I want to say, okay, I. I, I didn't waste my life. You know, I, I created a sandcastle, you know, even if, even if inevitably the, the waves will take it away and, it, and there'll be no trace of it. I want to know that I did something like that, um, before I left. And so, uh, you know, I kept writing and, I, and my assumption with the, the third book, third novel I did, Pim 
was that um, no which was one, which was your breakthrough? Yeah, that was that was it, and no one was going to see it. Like I really didn't think anyone was going to see it. Um, by anyone, I meant outside of a very small community. Like I was thinking, it probably would would you know reach a couple hundred people, and then um, and that would be it. But I was okay with that because I knew I could also there was a freedom there when no one's when no one's looking, you can do whatever you want, you know, and you're not worried about what what you know, um, what these, this group will think or what that group or like, what, you know, what, what will the, the award committee make of this? You know? <laughs> like, well, there is a freedom to it. There's yeah. a freedom to anonymity. Yeah. And, and by the way, now that you're uh, Mr. Cover of the New York Times book review, that's no longer the case. So that, yeah. I mean, as wonderful, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> but I mean, it's in the context of books, well, I mean, but yeah, it, yeah. now that that has happened, subsequent novels, it probably will not be possible to write with quite that sense of freedom. Well, I mean, that's what I felt on, uh, but before this, right? Because that, like, um, that this that was a little scary. It was it wasn't as scary as I would have thought it was, um, but it was a little scary because uh, after Pim, because I was like, oh crap, now they're going to read this, right? Like, now people, <laughs> and now, and also like the one interesting thing you get when you're first out the door. I don't think I don't hear people talking about it. Is there's an assumption when you get reviewed? Well, I'm a nobody. So because I'm a nobody, either they won't review the book or, or they'll, they'll, they won't try and destroy me because I'm a nobody. It's not worth the effort. Right. You know? Right. But so then when you start to get a little name, you go, oh, you know what? If there's actually more benefit for them now trying to take me down yeah. than there is in actually liking what's going on. Sure. And, and, you know, we all know of certain reviewers who have a tendency to praise. Um, You're going to name names? No. <laughs> no. Um, praise early career people and, and then take down people who are more established. So, you know, there, there was that question and I, I mean, and that'll be out there. And it's a weird thing when you get reviewed because, you know, um, at this point, it, it honestly, it, it, it matters somewhat a little less even still, and it still matters immensely, but it matters a little less than when I first started. Um, because when I first started, I was just dying for somebody to say, Hey, everyone read this. And, and now I've been able to get a little audience. So it's, it's a, it's better in that sense. But there's this thing where like, you're putting your face out and you're with your eyes closed and you don't know whether you're going to get kissed or kicked. Right. You know, and everyone comes back and like, sometimes you get kicked. Yeah. You know? like, yeah. Do you read you the reviews? I don't read the whole thing because it's not because of like some enlightenment, but because I'm, they're too painful yeah. for me to read. Um, so people tell you though, if it's good, they tell me if it's good or bad and I'll look, I'll read the first, I can tell from the first sentences and then they'll look to the last sentences. Um, just scan it quickly for like the, pull, yeah, for the pull it quote. Really is like, it's like, <laughs> okay, go, 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 go. All right, you're out. All right, you're out. You know, and, and I've been lucky. Most of the reviews have been good. None of them have been like a total attack. I mean, some of them have been mixed, but you know, I've been really, really fortunate. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but still, it's still like painful, but they're all up in your grill. Like it's, you know. And and I I know in the future there's going to be some that are you know that are really vicious I haven't I, like I haven't had that yet but I know that's coming sure so you don't know if this is a new one and it, and and but at this point it's nice because it doesn't ruin my career it's as much as it like really ruins my week yeah. yeah 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 which is totally different well no it's know? it's the old quote like a bad review spoils my breakfast but it never spoils my lunch right you know? if you yeah. can if you have the mental yeah. discipline to pull it off that way yeah and if it, it and if there's a little less at risk i mean at this point like i know i'll get reviewed by a lot of different places so one really bad review even um in a very prominent place won't be the the death knell for me sure so um but whereas when you're starting 
Like everything is hinged on can we get this review at all? Can we get the New York Times to look at it? Can we get the Post? Can we get Boston Globe? Will they even look at it? And if they don't, so you're only going to get one or two glimpses. And when they do, if it's negative, it's it's it can be devastating. Sure. Because nobody else is coming to look at it. Right. You know. Well, and the other the smaller papers follow. I mean, if you get right. a glowing review in the New York Times, right. uh, then you're the all of a sudden you're going to be getting reviewed in the smaller dailies. Right. Exactly. You know. Right. So yeah, you're you're trying to play Tarzan. You know, in the in the sense that you're going from branch to branch to branch. Right. And so, you need them to keep swinging. Okay. So when you uh, pre pim, you're in this career low. You you feel like you have to keep doing this, and you because you want to build your sandcastle, you have a lot of willpower, and you, one of those people you can't stop, like right, no. you you have to do it. Yeah, I it wasn't even like a choice. It's just what I do. And and you work every day. Like, what's your yeah. you, you seem like a guy who uh, really I mean everyone who does this over a long period of time yeah. and produces work like you you have a, a system. Uh, I did for a long time. I mean, when I started writing, what I would do was, um, you know, I was single and I was I was working at the electric company, answering phones for money. So every day, I would um, come home from work. I collapse um, at about six. I wake up at about eight, um, and then I'd have two hours to watch TV and goof off. At ten o'clock, um, I would start uh, like thinking about writing and hopefully get into write. Um, I'd write till um, about midnight, um, or sometimes it would it would be, I'd start later and, and write later. By one o'clock, I would print um, whatever I, um, I had written, or at least save it. Um, and then the next day, I would take the the pages that I did to work, and I would edit them during that day. And then at night at ten o'clock, the first thing I do was start edit, um, taking those corrections and work on those, and then write new material. And so at the I wrote the first novel. Um, that first year that way and then later i had different versions of that um like it, it always changed because of life like when i got with my wife um when we moved in with each other you know we had i had a social life i had we were together you know so, <laughs> i had the same experience like suddenly you're doing shit right? like, <laughs> <laughs> so then all of a sudden i was getting up at six o'clock in the morning because i was working at um at Viacom during the day. So I get up at six or seven. This is I, in New York. This is in, in New York. I lived in Harlem and I write for two hours and then, um, I would, uh, go in and, and read the pages then and then restart in the morning. And then later, you know, I had kids, I teach full time. Uh, I'm at the university of Houston's, uh, PhD and in, in MFA program. Now I just steal my time. Um, so yeah, cause three kids. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. So every morning is spent getting them up, getting them dressed, getting them out of the house, all that. Right. And then every evening is spent, you know, um, working on homework, getting dinner done, um, getting them down for bed. And when they're done, my, I'm mentally burnt. Yeah. And then my, my hours during the day will fluctuate. What I try and do mostly is I come in when I get in, I, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have a job where it offers a lot more time. Sure. So I come in now and I might teach at one that gives me nine to 11 to write. And if, you know, I teach at 1030, maybe I get out, I get, to, I try and steal two hours in there. So like, I'm actually happy about the gorilla days because they taught me how to manage my time a lot better. The other thing is like a huge thing for me was accepting when I can't write because before what would happen was I couldn't write. So I would get mad at myself for not writing. And then I would get depressed. You get cranky. Yeah. And once I was depressed, it was harder to write. Right. And so I put myself in these holes and they would spin for months because I would, it, it, it got worse and worse and worse. 
And later I learned to absolve myself and, and trust that, okay, you can't write now. That doesn't mean you're not going to be able to write ever. Do other things, you know, it will come to you, take the pressure off and, um, you know, and don't get upset. Like, you know, I've been on sabbatical this last term. My intention was to write like a, a rough draft of, of what I was working on. Um, I got 75 pages in and even those 75 pages, I'm sure will get erased. But you know, I'm not upset with myself. That took a long time to get to that point. Right. Well, and the thing too, you have kids, you have, you, you know, you have your day job, you have your family. Uh, it, it kind of forces a certain discipline. Yeah. I mean, hopefully you, cause yeah, you're only going to have so many hours to work. Exactly. You either use them or they're gone. Yeah. And of those hours, which ones you really going to be awake for? Right. Right. <laughs> and yeah. So the, you know, it's definitely changed, but, um, but, I, you know, the weird thing is I always think I'm procrastinating. I'm not getting anything done. I'm not doing anything. And then I look back and go, oh, wait, I got a lot done. You do by word count or anything like that? Um, no. Well, I used to. I would do page number. I would do three or five pages at a sitting. But now what I do is scenes. And it's it's so much better for me. Okay. Because now I can uh, I'll imagine a scene in the time before it sometimes that two hours is just me going for a walk or going to the gym and in the back of my head i'm thinking about that scene and um and basically i'm not playing the whole scene out i'm just imagining um a situation i can get into narratively that might create something interesting um and or you know a transition transitions between paragraphs or, or scenes that that's a lot of work like figuring out how to do this gracefully it's funny because like most of the stuff we talk about as writers, most of the stuff is actually important about our books. The book reviews, the commercial book reviews, don't talk about them at all. You know, like um, in my, the opening of my um, new novel, Loving Day, I have this thing where there's these people breaking into the house and you don't know if they're ghosts or, or, or drug addicts. And to get the prose down, the rhythm on the prose right, that, that it kind of mirrored terror and mirrored anxiety you know, and I and using I started using these abbreviated sentences and going into this oral quality because it created this intimacy um, that made everything feel emotionally realer. Like that took a while to figure out how yeah. to do. Yeah. But no review. Like, right. 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 Reviews are this is what happened. This I like this and this sucked. Yeah. I mean, you know, You're like, do you realize what I went through to get these right? pages? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I was standing, standing in my privileged position going, do you not understand the sentence structures? <laughs> um, you know, but uh, yeah, and stuff like that. And, and uh, so a lot of my working is, is off the page and I'm thinking about how to get myself into that situation. And then when I hit um, the page, I can go right into that situation. And sometimes simple as come up with the first sentence or come up with the first idea. And then see what happens after that. Because I, I don't want to know what's going to happen. Because if I write everything off the page, or most of it off the page, when I go to write it, it's dead. So I want you to feel the tension I feel as a writer there. I mean, part of what part of what I've been doing with the books, not everybody does, you know, we're all doing different things. Part of what I'm, what I'm doing is trying to walk out on the edge and then do a little dance. So there's a tension from me and, and from the reader. Am I going to fall flat on my face? Um, am I going to go down? So, you know, that's the tension I want there on the page because, you know, it's it's a good tension. It's an entertaining tension. Sometimes, I was going to say the word entertaining. Yeah. Which is important. Yeah, for me. like, But we a lot of us in lit fiction don't think about that right. entertainment anymore. I mean, we had a divide um, in the 20th century between entertainment and art. Um, not all books, but but in some ways uh, the, the, the mainstream thought about literary fiction. And uh, for me, the books that work the best, the books that I really love, you know, the books you take to the island, 
Um, they're all books that are immensely entertaining. Um, but uh, in addition, they also do something fundamentally interesting and change the way you look at the world or the art, right? So, you know, um, that's tr- what I've been trying to go for. Sure. So the, and another thing, it takes some of the risk away too because if I fail, which sometimes I do, <laughs> you know, um, then I, I failed uh, trying to do something worth failing at. You know, so when they come in and say, I didn't like this, I didn't like that. I'm like, oh, yeah, well, at least I was doing this. Well, it's a <laughs> noble failure. Right. You know, taking some risks. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, so I want to get back into um, career arc. And I want to get, I guess I'll, I'll go back to Pim because Pim uh, broke through for you. And it led to this phase of your career that you're in now where you are getting reviewed. You are um, starting to build a significant readership and get the kind of attention that I think all writers want. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was it? I mean, obviously the book has to be good, but I mean, was there something you can point to? Was it social media? Was it you're with the right house and the right editor? Was it the marketing effort? Like everyone always wants to crack this. Like what is it that helped it break through? Right. I I got lucky and I did the hard work to get lucky, right? You heard that. So this is what specifically happened. Um, When I was initially coming out, I was uh, marketed understandably as an African-American writer because ethnically I'm African-American. But I'm also mixed, and I look to a lot of people like I'm white or like I'm Hispanic. A lot of people don't register that I'm African-American. I wouldn't know. Right. So um, so when I was coming out, there's there's a, it was a critical response like, okay, um, part, of the, part of the white readership desire for some writers uh, is, or for some readers is to get an in into understanding black culture. So, or in understanding, understanding Dominican culture or other, the culture of the other, right? So that's a huge first entry point. Um, now, when they get there, they might see the artistry and other things, and then, and then you know, um, it works. But that's why a lot of them are coming to the party. So I wasn't offering the party. They were looking at me going, what, like, what, what are you? What party is this? You know, <laughs> what's the theme here? Right. So, um, and I think a lot of my uh, my disconnection or uh, was uh, people didn't know what to make of me. And they also didn't know what to make of the art, like to make of the writing. Because um, the writing was entertaining in some ways and, and, and had, you know, hip-hop influences and other things. But humor. Humor. Um, and humor, period, like, um, is, it, there's, you know, there was, some of them were funny, but they weren't satires, you know. Um, Pim was more of a satire, but the other ones weren't, but there was humor in them. They were hard to categorize and people didn't know what to do. One of the, one of the best things in the early marketing of an author is if people can say, this person is the next blank. Right. Right. And there wasn't any next blank. So there was no brand. Um, and this is not just in writing. This is like in life. Like I swear, like I would have gotten laid so much easier in high school if The Rock and Vin Diesel existed. <laughs> right? Because right. I would have, man, like I, I would have been, people would have been like, oh, you know, there's a big, you know, uh, ambiguously black dude. You know, I'd have worked it too. I'd have lifted <laughs> everything, you know, I, and, and I would have done better. Probably because there, there would have been like well Obama I mean like the right, sure. the cultural yeah. time that we're in yeah. there seems to be um, it seems to be a nice like synergy or at least right. a coincidence or something yeah. the, the biracial people you know or mixed people exist more now right? yeah in people's imagination whereas when I earlier they didn't so people just look at you like huh and you tell them well my dad's white and my mom's black huh like they just couldn't register um, you know so there was no like existing brand and like in literature there's no existing brand. So um, what changed um, was I wasn't getting press coverage. I wasn't getting publisher uh, financial backing in the sense that, you know, 
Um, well, Bloomsbury tried, but there just wasn't much uh, interest. So um, I happened to be sitting on Twitter when that happened. You know, Twitter happened like, and you know, it wasn't some great marketing idea. I just went on because for me, it was like AWP all year. Like I could just go on there and I had friends on there, like Colson was on there and uh, Whitehead and, and, you know, a lot of other writers, Alexander Chi and all these other writers that I met on there. And, uh, you know, a lot of people you have on your show, like they were on Twitter early. So I, and I'm the halcyon days of early social right, media, <laughs> right? Every social media yeah. site when it starts. Right. Yeah. And so, um, and it was a great thing for, for my style when it changed from a conversation, when they came up with the retweet button, all of a sudden it became a broadcast medium. And the broadcast medium worked because I'm I'm funny and I could do quick funny things that would give people an understanding of what I do, right? And that's really hard for us as writers because, you know, you can watch a trailer for a movie, you can hear a couple seconds of a song, but really to to understand what people are doing, the spell we're trying to cast in our books, you got to read a whole damn book, which is like a you know a thirty dollar uh, purchase in three weeks of your life, right? So Twitter enabled um, me to show people what I do. Right. And that was part of it. And then Twitter um, blew up and I was just sitting there. And um, how many followers you got now? Um, it's like 67,000. That's something. a lot. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. And so all of a sudden people saw what I was doing and um, and and liked my sense of humor and liked my 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 perspective. So they were willing to look at pin. And that was a big difference. Is that you you, you translated that like your audience, like sixty seven thousand followers, like and and what's the level of engagement? Because sometimes yeah, it can no, be. Yeah. You know, but I mean, you. Can I mean, I assume half of them, maybe less than half, but a lot of them are just not real human. They're like bots and right. Yeah. And a lot of them are people who just sign on and then they never get on. Before. How did you get sixty seven thousand? Just just volume and quality and people just I, latched on. I mean, it was. I mean, compared to it, it seems like a lot, but like compared to like my friends who were on there, like it wasn't even that much. It was just being. Being on there, I think, and then people then retweeting your stuff. People and... retweet your stuff, and then people put me on lists. And then once you're on a list, people are like top ten, such and such, top ten, such and such. All of a sudden, you get tons of followers that way. Uh -huh. and Twitter put me on a list eventually, and then uh -huh. it really shot. Gotcha. So uh, yeah, that happened, but um, I still didn't realize what was going on. And I think probably the, what the real impact of Twitter is people in the media were following. Uh -huh. And so um, it's not Twitter itself because there's people on Twitter who I've been on there forever. They have no idea that I'm a fiction writer. It's the people in um, in the book reviews and, and other press, they saw what I was doing, you know, um, and that's and, and so old media really mattered. But I was connecting these people in old media and they opened the book. Well, cause, OK, because like and I don't mean to diminish in any way um, the success of Loving Day. But like when you look at yourself on the cover of the New York Times book review and you think about uh, the editorial staff of the New York Times or the editor of the New York Times book review, do you think that nowadays they would add into the equation of what to feature. They would think about a writer's social media presence because of trying to drive readers to the book review. Do you know what I'm saying? Does that, yeah. does that help you get that? Well, you know, I, I don't, I think it could in the future. I don't think it works like that now. I think the difference is now is that I didn't have a platform. Now I have a platform. Right. And so I'm just in their heads. Right. So when I say I have a new book coming out and I drop, you know, I drop hints like, like, yeah, I used to drop hints to my mom before Christmas, you know, you know, I really would like a green machine, <laughs> but I guess that's too much. You know yeah. what I mean? So I'll drop hints about my book coming out. Now they know. And, and you know, the, and the, and really the biggest difference between hunting in Harlem and Pim, and it's funny because when Pim came out, there was all this response like, 
you know, where is this coming from? You know, we haven't seen this. It was, and I'd done a lot, very similar work in hunting in Harlem. They just hadn't looked. So, that, so it literally got them to open the book and read it. And then once I read it, I kept in their minds. And the other thing is you can write, and you've seen this, you see a great movie, you're like, I'd like to see everything this director does. Then they don't do another movie for five years and you forget about it, right? And then, you you, you know, that's it. Twitter let me keep in their minds. Yeah. And I was out there. I'm right. working on this book and I'm out there. And then when I had it, they remembered. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they opened the book again. And uh, I still think the the work has to, the work itself has to be there. But um, but for many of us, getting someone to open up and actually take you serious is huge. And the other thing is I gave them context for understanding what my work was. And before they they were coming in and they were looking, even now, like I see in the reviews that there's people who they're thinking that some other book is going to be presented to them and they get mine. Well, and particularly I think from, the, from an African-American literary perspective, there's been a concept um, – among the audience and the critical audience that the purpose of the African-American writer is to, is to hold a mirror to white culture. And the purpose of the African-American satirist is to hold a funhouse mirror to, to white culture. And I've seen like reviews already. I mean, unfortunately, you know, by white men in particular who are like, you know, I hold held up this, I went to the page and it didn't hold up enough of a mirror to me. And also it wasn't really much of a funhouse mirror. Like, you know, and, and you see that responses like, you know, it's not as funny um, as as the as Pim, but and I like. But then when they give examples, the, the, they're not saying the jokes don't land. They're saying there's not enough jokes, and that makes you realize they're looking for a different book. So when they come, they're seeing something different. Right. So like, uh, I think we all deal with perception, and that doesn't. You know, that, that's the backside of it. you're the next such and such. You know, if you're supposed to be the next Philip Roth, and you do a book that's not a Philip Roth type book. There's people who are going to come in and judge it based on Philip Roth. And that's like, as an artist, that's scary. Sure. Because it, it's saying they're not going to see you, you know. Um, and then when you add race and the other stuff into it, it gets even more complicated. Um, so, you know, I I think um, Twitter, is to, uh, to a large degree, let me tell people, this is, who, this is what I'm dealing with. This is the perspective I'm coming from. Now when I tell the joke, you can get the joke. Right. Do you know what I mean? Sure. And and particularly in the critical class. But, you know, I, my, I, my graduate students are all like, should I get on Twitter and stuff? And, and I tell them probably no. It can be I, annoying. Yeah, I just got lucky on this thing, and I'm sure it's going to die in the seminar. In the, <laughs> sorry, but it's like a, there's supernova. It's insanely annoying, and I there's benefits to it. You know, I was on today just like, you know, like telling water cooler jokes is basically what I've been doing. And it's fun in those moments, but there's also moments where it takes itself so seriously. Outrage culture. Outrage culture is, is I mean, Twitter is outrage culture. Like, like that's where it's happening. Like, you know, um, and that part gets completely exhausting. Yeah. Um, not just because people are outraged. There's lots of reasons to be outraged. It's it's um, when it becomes almost a narcotic and self-righteousness becomes a narcotic. Well, you know, I was reading an interview you did where you said you get a cookie for being mad or something. And yeah. like that, th- th- this is something that did not dawn on me until far too late. I think a lot of people yeah. picked up on this early, but yeah. that's how you can generate like a big following. Like oh, you can, yeah, totally. you can milk Twitter just by being pissed off and articulate yeah. about it and having like, uh, yeah. you know, getting up on the soapbox and being angry. And then suddenly you become, right. you know, it's, somebody to follow. Yeah. It's very easy to, to do that. But yeah, I wonder like when it all of a sudden it was uh, on there, it was, 
um, if you were funny, you could get people to follow you. And then there was a huge wave of like comedy going towards it. Sure. And some of them are really funny, have almost no followers. Because, it's a great medium for joke tellers. Yeah. And so what's going to happen, there's going to be something else besides outrage that's going to hit that there's going to be tons of followers for. I've seen like, you know, people putting up photography and using it that way. Whatever it is, is going to attract carpetbaggers you know, sure. that are going to come behind. But uh, so I, I don't plan on being there forever because I, I, my emotion, emotionally, I can't handle it. Right. You know, it's too much. And I've like, right now I have heavy duty filters, uh -huh. so I can't even see like, I'm what do you mean you got heavy duty filters? Oh, they add, oh man, they added on the troll filters now. Oh. So I have the troll filters. So I'm like, I, there's an algorithm and you know, if a lot of people have blocked you or if you've got, you know, you're following 3000 people and only 150 people are following you. I can't see what you're saying. If you've got an egg profile, I don't see what you're saying. Oh. So, um, and it's sad because there's some people I wish I was seeing what they're saying because I'll go through every once in a while and look and see what's behind the filter. But, um, but for the most part, it's gotten better because you, you know, you don't have that constant. I, I was getting a lot of hate, Sure. you know, like almost everybody else. Right. And, and certainly the amount of hate I get is, is small compared to what, what, you know, other people like Roxanne Gay get. So, uh, but it still was better. And why does she get so much? I feel like she's constantly like having to defend herself against trolls. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it's everything she stands for. You know, um, she's a black woman. She's an intellectual, and and um, you know, and she's very open and free about what she's thinking. And that's just uh, you know, Target City. But you know, at the same time, like you know, you ask like what this is what it feels like when can I curse on here? Yeah, of course. <laughs> this is what it feels like when shit blows up. Right. So um, all these things I decided, like critically, I'm never going to hit. I just did. Uh, and I accepted that. And I was I was OK with it. All of a sudden happened. Like I got reviewed in The New York Times. That never happened before. Like I was like for years, I was like, please let me on the books and brief, you know. And all of a sudden I got a full page review like that. So, I, you know, I was in kind of in shock on that. Then I got review, reviewed on Fresh Air. And growing up in Philly, like Fresh Air was huge for me. Oh, yeah. So, you know. How is Terry in person? Did you meet her in person? No, that time I just got reviewed. I, had, I did an interview with her this oh. time, but she was lovely. You met her? Yeah, uh, no, she doesn't meet you. You, you, you do a studio. Her, but I made her laugh. Oh. And I got to say, it's a blessed thing to make Terry laugh. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so, you know. I feel bad for you being here after doing that. <laughs> so <laughs> you're making me laugh. It's a long it way down. Out. It's, it's better. <laughs> um, so, uh, I, you know. These things happen within like a day, right? I got the review for the Times, and then the, um, and then the Fresh Air review came in, and these, Maureen Corrigan. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she usually doesn't hate books, right? So as soon as I heard her voice, I was like, "Oh, thank you, thank yeah. God, it's not Alan Chase." <laughs> like, thank you. Um, so <laughs> anyway, so it, it hit, and I kind of, uh, I had a mini nervous breakdown because I just like I don't know, I'm gotten very good at being you know, the best author nobody's ever heard of. Right. So all of a sudden people are listening now, freak me out. Like, sure. I was like what is, what does this mean? So I kind of went into minor shock, like really like minor shock. Like I was cold, you know, and I had a reading in Houston. It was in March and it was like 70 degrees in Houston in March. And, uh, I had a reading in New York and that the reading, I mean, there's little Debbie snack cakes in the book. So to occupy my kids, I gave them my credit cards and told them, just go buy some little Debbie snack cakes. I don't want you here for the reading because I don't want you to hear what I'm saying. But when it's <laughs> over, you come in, you can hand out the Little Debbie Snack Cakes to people as they leave the bookstore. And so uh, I did that, and then I couldn't sleep that night, and it didn't matter because at 4 o'clock in the morning, I flew to LaGuardia. I landed in LaGuardia, and I realized, oh, it's not 70 degrees in New York in March. 
and I'm wearing a t-shirt, <laughs> right? I had no coat. And uh, I also realized, oh, I, I, I have my license. It was really important to me to have my license, but I never got my credit card back for my kids. I don't have my bank card, I don't have my credit card. Who are still in Houston. Who are still in Houston. So I'm just there. With, I'm in, stuck in LaGuardia in a t-shirt. It's like 20 degrees outside, and I've just got my license. So, I, you know, I gave my uh, – talk about forcing your publisher to contribute to your, your tour. Um, I, uh, I gave um, my publisher a call like, where they worked everything out. I got a, a, somebody there had like a coat similar size. They figured out how to check me into a, 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 a hotel. Meanwhile, my, I've got this massive migraine. They're taking me around to sign books in this freaking limo, which is not helping my mind. Right? <laughs> it's very <laughs> – what's, what's the Don DeLillo book where he's in the uh, limo? Oh, the, yeah, you yeah, know. yeah. Yeah. But I was like, I'm supposed to take the B-13 to Harlem and then take the subway <laughs> down. There's been some mistake. So, yeah. I, you know, I was um, I, I, I was still cold though. So I, I tweeted out, um, uh, look, does anybody have a hat? Because I'm going to this reading tonight. If you're coming to the reading, if somebody could bring a hat, because I'm I'm freezing, still, and um and you know again I realized later some of it was shock, and uh, so we pulled up at Magnolia Jackson in the limo, stretch limo, stretch limo. Damn. I look in the um in the back of the uh, of of the store, and there's it's packed. There's like 150 people there. Like I never had that many people at any reading. Ever. Usually I'm a good 12-er. Yeah. You know, and that's hoping... Baker's dozen. Yeah, that's hoping there's some homeless people who are, who are too, like, you know, embarrassed to get up and leave, right? And so there's like 150 people there. And I look, and like a third of them are holding hats. And that's when I was like, oh, this Twitter thing is real. No shit. Yeah. So... Were uh, they new hats or used? I really did. <laughs> like, I didn't get that far. I don't know if I, I want one, your old hat. Right. I use Elliot Holt. Who's a, who's a really good writer. Yeah, she's been on the show. Yeah, she's great. And she, I, I took her hat, and uh, I still have her hat. But, uh, yeah, so, like, that was when I knew something had changed. Uh-huh. Um, and Butch was a shock, because that was 2011. You know, I had started trying to write in 93, and I published my first book in 2000. And, you know, I'd been in the game for a while. I'd been in the game for 20 years at that point, almost. And so, I, uh, you know, I was really, I was shocked. I really assumed that none of that was going to happen. So, you know, it's, 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 uh, it feels damn good. Yeah. Just in the sense that, like, you know, I was cool with it never happening, and that would have been okay. I think, it's, you know, it's not uncommon. I feel like I've heard this story told before in the context yeah. of writing careers where it's almost like you have to die this false death. It's like, like the, you'd mentioned, yeah. like, the, the ego being diminished or whatever. Yeah. You kind of go through that, like, ritual fire, and then you right. come out on the other side, and it's like, now I can actually... Right. It's the hero's journey. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, I, and I've and i heard people talk about that. I mean, I, I had Michael Cunningham as a professor when I was a, a grad student, and he talked about hitting a low point um, and, and the good stuff coming after the low point. The funny thing is it doesn't end either. Right. It's like you get new lows. <laughs> good. You See, get new lows. False summits and false naders. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a part of It's just like people like you have your midlife crisis. Well, that, you have that about 10 times. You I've just, been having one ever like, right. since <laughs> I was 24. Right. You're having, you, you realize you're having crisis all the time. It's just, you know, um, you have more money to make them grand later. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. But, yeah, so, you know, um, I'm just like right now I'm just kind of trying to enjoy it because I honestly don't think this lasts. There's a limo idling in my driveway right, right. now, by the way. It's a white stretch limo. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so wait, I want to ask you because uh, I want to make sure we get this stuff in. There's a couple things I want to get to. One of which is you mentioned your editor. Um, and I think that this is something that I don't maybe talk about enough on this show and that uh, is worth discussing because 
you, you know, you said he's the best editor you've ever had. And yeah. having somebody like that in your corner as a writer um, is, A, wonderful. To have somebody who gets your work and yeah. who can read it and really inhabit it from your perspective and yeah. give you feedback that's super meaningful and often instrumental in making it uh, better. Yeah. So like, can you talk about that relationship? Well, you know, I was lucky from the get-go. I had a, I had a good editor when I started and, and I think a great editor for a lot of people and, and it points for me too. It was Cameron Aldi of Bloomsbury who like saw my work, got it and everything else. So it's not, it's also that I've gotten older, you know, and, um, and I used to like push back more, you know, because I was young and, and, and proud and all those things. And so I couldn't do it. And, um, and when I started working with Chris Jackson, um, I, I think I'd been humbled in a lot of ways already. You know, I realized that they're actually there to help us. <laughs> yeah. Know? Right. Right. They I'm might not, have some good insight. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear this, I like from students all the time, like they're not going to control my voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like in, you're that's, um, that's self-sabotage, you know, right there. Um, so I could hear him and, you know, we're similar age. Uh, we're both African-American. Um, you know, uh, I'm mixed, but he has a mixed uh, child. So that when like both of that, that dynamic was going into this book and he really challenged me on like a lot of stuff and pushed me on a lot of stuff. You ever get pissed off? Like, oh, in, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, he's my boy too. Like we're, we're, we're friends as well. I mean, you can't, I don't think you can go through something like this, um, successfully and not be real friends with them at the end. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah. So I get annoyed all the time and there's times I was right. And, but a good relationship, like, is not only can I listen to my editor and, and not only is he, he or he or she mostly right, but there's times when I'm actually right and they can hear me. Yeah. You know, um, because it's all comes down to this vision. Like we have this, you know, platonic ideal of what we're trying to get to. So, you know, we can, we can edit in accordance with the vision. The vision is very hard to articulate before the book's there. It's even hard to articulate after. And, you know, you see this with the, with the reviews, like you can tell when somebody gets the song that you're trying to sing. Right. And they can judge it along those lines. And the most brutal reviews to me emotionally are the ones where people um, get exactly what you're trying to do <laughs> right. and point out how you didn't get there. <laughs> right, right. You're like, oh, shit. Right. It's when they when they have no clue. It's amazing. It can, the review could be a, incredibly negative. But if they don't have any clue what you're trying to do, it's, it's very easy to, to brush it aside. Right. Um, and, you know, so when I work with my editor – we're pushing in that regard and we're, and, and we're having um, conversations outside of this. Like we, you know, with this book, loving day, it's about, um, uh, it's about the mixed race experience, the black, white, specifically mixed race experience right now in part. And it's also, um, a, a love story between a father and a daughter. And, um, and so, you know, we were arguing about all these different things. Um, you know, one of the difficult things about being a father, my daughter's 13 now, and I was using uh, my um, my oldest is thirteen, my youngest is nine, and this character was a teenager, so I was pulling a lot from the oldest one. One of the tricky things was how do you avoid cliche? Mm -hmm. Because as a parent, you get hit like the cliches are real. Yeah, right. Like, no, I have a room full of Barbies right now. Right. Like, all that stuff. Like exactly. you, th you think when you're starting out, like we're going to avoid this, but right, and you don't. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so, like all those things are there, and then so how do you deal with that? How do you deal with cliche on the page when the cliche is the, is the reality, and and things like that, and you know, so we were like, I would, there was a bunch of times I taught class, I get out at, at 12, at, at, at one o'clock and then we, a couple of times would talk until, you know, two thirty, now and probably about four times on this book, um, just going through stuff. And also like there was parts in the book because part of this, uh, of, of loving day was about, 
how um, how mixed race uh, black people are seen within the black community. Well, yeah, and this was the, the second thing I wanted to get to is the race. You know, it's, yeah. it's a tough thing to talk about, but like yeah. you seem particularly well positioned to talk about it. I mean, yeah. having you know, like both uh, backgrounds. Yeah, well, I mean, it's weird because like the the I was kind of like even talking about this is somewhat taboo in the black community. Like there's um, because there's been a lot of people who've used mixed race identity as an opportunity to escape black identity. Right. So it's, there's a connotation of, uh, of people who define this mix as being sellouts or Oreos. So like uh, even Obama, like Obama like was getting, I remember, pushback on his blackness when he was running like right. he, from the black community. Right. From well, for, from members of the black community. Right. But, but uh, from not from the majority, but from some. Sure. So in part, there's race becomes a strategy. A good example of this, uh, I, which I thought was great. It happened after I was done. The book was the TV show Blackish started. And uh, on, on, in the opening episode, I think there was a scene where, and um, the husband is telling the wife she's not truly black because she's mixed, um, because she's biracial. And ten minutes later, there's another scene where he's admonishing his kids for not knowing more about Obama because he's the black president, right? So like, in that, and, and it doesn't seem to be presented with any self consciousness. Like it's not intentionally. Um, juxtaposed, but it's there. And um, you think that's an accurate reflection? Oh yeah, because yeah. I mean, they, people talk about race being a strategy, um, you know, uh, at some level. And here you have the perfect example of that. Um, you know, the way we perceive race, um, who is in, who is out of a group, um, is is in part a strategy. Um, so you see those elements there. So it, like when you write about race, it's like dealing with to- toxic waste. Because there's so much pain. I'm scared to talk about it. Yeah. Let well, alone write about it. I mean, I, so, you know, and I, I think as being, you know, um, being a person who's uh, partly of African descent, like, I, I have some leeway there. How, how do you identify? Because like, everyone always talks about how we identify. Right. Like, do you identify well, as mixed? in California, so they definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, but I mean, it's like yeah. it gets tricky. And like, you know, you look, like yeah. you said, like, is he Latino? Right. Is he white? What right. is he? Like. Yeah, that's that's the whole thing. I mean, identify. I identify. Um, as as mixed, I, I in my head I identify as even mulatto, and like, like even mixed people hate that word. <laughs> not some. Like I can't say that word. I probably not yet. I mean, you can say it with me, but don't get in the habit because yeah. other people will be offended. No, I read the thing you wrote for uh, BuzzFeed yeah. about mulatto, and I made some sense to me, and it was also funny. Yeah. Well, I mean, in my mind, if if um, if the LBGT community can claim queer and right. turn that around. Like or, or uh, they say fag. I mean, yeah. all the time out here, yeah. I have gay friends yeah. who say they, that word. They got iron that out more before I'll touch that one. Right. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like it, words, to my mind, words mean what we, what we invest in them. So, um, you know, uh, in my head, I, I identify as, as, um, you know, as biracial, as mixed, as mulatto. Um, but it, to me, that's in part, that's ethnicity. When I'm talking about race, I'm talking about ethnicity. Like, you know, a couple months ago, you know, a kid was shot walking down the street and killed for being black. Now, he identified as biracial and his family identified him as bi- biracial. But it, having one parent doesn't mean you get to this, you know, card that frees you up from the history of race. Right. But race the, the weird thing is like, e- like even as, as white as I appear, you know, I'm still like too black for publishing. <laughs> well, I publishing mean, is- for publishing. <laughs> right. I mean, the thing is, like, it's, you know. I know, like every other writer, I, um, you know, I will sell less books because I'm not white. I know I'll be in less bookstores because I'm not white. Um, you, you know, I, I know that even though I'm on the New York cover of the New York Times, it doesn't mean you're going to be able to find me in your in your local chain bookstore. Really? 
Yeah. Damn. So, you know, I, I mean, I understand it before that, but the cover of the New York Times, you would think that would finally be the. That mean damn thing. Damn. Yeah. Right. So that's some like hardcore old school, you know. Institutional bias. <laughs> and that's actually what it is. It's institutional bias. There's not a, there's not a huge market for literary fiction of, uh, written by black people. And, and so for that reason, and based on probably earlier sales around that reason, you know, I don't sell as many books. Mo the, I sell books in the long run. I sell books when like I come to your college. You know, I sell books when people tell other people around them. And like as much as people have difficulties with Amazon, if it wasn't for Amazon, I'd be dying right now. I love indies, but they're not everywhere. Right. And, you know, you know, I'm, I'm not really in the chains. You know, in Houston, Texas, there's not one copy of my book at any Barnes & Noble. No shit. Yeah. In your hometown. In my hometown. Not one copy. That's a, when I left town. I mean, so maybe somebody sent one in. That's bullshit. So you know that the, the race is still here, and I and I I have to deal with it. I'm well, not, I mean, you and like the thing too is that you're from Philly, um, white father, African American mother. Yep. And obviously, um, you know, there's racial tensions everywhere. But you go from living in the Northeast, born and raised, went to what you went to college in the Northeast yeah. too, and yeah. then now you're down in Houston. I mean, that's the South. Yeah, do you it's feel the it, south, you, it's it's the southwestish. It's Texas, right? But yeah, that's all there. Um, you know, Houston is wild because like it's actually people don't realize, but it's this incredibly diverse place now. Yeah, the University of Houston is the mo one of the most diverse schools in the country every year, and sometimes number one, depending on enrollment. So, um, the Houston I live in is Indian and Pakistani and Arab and other Middle Eastern and you know, um, Asian and we have great Vietnamese food. And so it's really kind of multicultural. And that's actually one of the things I like about it is like, I'm used to, uh, or not used to, I like being in the room where there's no majority <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Not because I don't quite fit in anywhere. So like, you know, that I like having that, that space where there's all different types of people. And, and that's one of the things I love about it. It's what I loved about LA when I was here too. At different sure. Points. Yeah. No, LA is, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's the most diverse city in the world per cab, you know, whatever. Uh, I think it's per, Houston. Is it now? Yeah. Yeah. We're, well, we're uh, on, you know, everything but the heat. We've conquered everything but the heat. So, okay. So you, uh, most people looking at you would not think African-American. Mm -hmm. Do you ever get into situations where you're in public or you're with white people or you're with whoever and they're saying things that are that, that they would never say in the presence of a black person? Have you ever had that experience where you're kind of like yeah. overhearing or you're talking to somebody and you're like, wait a yeah. minute, do you not know? You know, you're right. when I was younger, I would. Um, you know, it's funny because I think like when when people talk about like me looking white, they're, they're really in contrast to a, to a black archetype. They think I look white, but I don't look white enough that people right. relax that much. Okay. But, um, but it would happen when I was younger sometimes. Um, uh, doesn't, you know, now when I in a room, a lot of times people know who I am before I in a room. So it changes. I honestly, like it would happen sometimes, um, particularly on class levels. Uh, you know, I mean, a lot of times like, there was more acceptance of, of racial intolerance in Philly among white working class people than among middle class people. Not that middle class people were any more racist, but they knew less racist, but they knew how to hide it. Yeah. <laughs> they knew how not to talk about it. Were you something. raised working class? Um, my, I was raised kind of working middle class. So, okay. you know, a blurred line. Some, you know, in some ways very working class, in some ways very middle class. Um, and my parents were divorced, so there was also that um, two houses and all that going on. But so, both in Philly? Yeah. You know, the funny, because the racist stuff I hear now it's oftentimes um, unintentional. I mean, the thing is, like, we all of us have all these prejudices that are coming from the larger society that we don't unpack. 
You know, like I like my kids. My kids love Indiana Jones. No, your kid. Did you marry a white woman? Um, a black woman. A black woman. Okay. I my kids love Indiana Jones, and we watch all the TV shows, all the movies. They love it because it was a professor who goes and travels, and I'm a professor who travels. So they were like, "It's daddy." I'm yeah, like, yeah. yeah, sure. <laughs> yes, <I'm it> Jones. <laughs> At the same time, like you know, the early movies in particular, like he's going out and robbing these these cultures of their sacred items. <laughs> you know, like it's <laughs> it's a clear villain standpoint. Um, you know. Uh, the, the colonial standpoint. So we all have all these things that we don't even examine, you know, and that are there. And so I hear things like, I, I was just coming out here and I remember in graduate school, this woman, we were talking about what we had to read for the syllabus. And I think like Tony K. Bombero was on there or somebody like that. And she turned to me and said, Oh God, I hate reading African Americans. And I was like, what do you mean? It's like, Oh, you know, I mean, they all just talk about race. And uh, I know this woman wouldn't think she was racist. I know what she thinks she thinks she was saying, but that's racist. Yeah. I've also had like multiple white people, some of them friends, um, say to me, you know, Toni Morrison is really overrated. I, don't you think she's overrated? Which, you know, <laughs> I have no comment on that, but I never once in my life heard somebody come up to me and talk about a huge established white author and say, Philip Roth. Nobody yeah. has ever said that to me. Yeah. And I've heard like five different white people say, isn't Toni Morrison overrated? Like that's, so we, we have the, those kind of race issues around that. My challenge as a human is, is to understand where they're coming from that, that, um, you know, really like I'm, I really try and understand where they're coming from and I try and point out to them in a way that they won't get too defensive. You know, what's happening there in part is, is, um, some, some, you had a bug in your programming. And you gotta you gotta attack that bug. It doesn't make you a bad person. It just means there's a bug in your programming. And you that's know a, that's I, a thoughtful way of looking at it because I think some people might be so impatient with that kind of behavior that it's like immediate demonization. Yeah, I would love to do the demonization. That's almost what people you know are expected to do. But the problem is demonization gets us nowhere. Right. Because once you start demonizing, the entire discussion shuts down. Yep. And the immediate discussion is, I'm not racist. Why are you attacking me? I'm not racist. Or, you know, you know and, and nothing moves forward. And, and I know this, like, uh, you know, as a man, you know, I was programmed to be misogynistic. You know, I'm programmed to be like, you know, uh, prejudiced against women. And I try not to be, and I'm still trying not to be. But sometimes I say things or I think things and I got to go, oh, wait, that's not cool. Right. That's not right. Well, I mean, in a way, it, I mean, I think it's defensible to say that everyone has some degree of racism in them. Sure. You know, black, have, white, Asian, whatever you are, you have some sort of racial bias. We all have bias. xenophobia, right? We all have prejudice and xenophobia. And um, so that's the, the, the real issue is um, are you actively trying to challenge it? If you're actively trying to challenge it, it's not that it gives you a pass, but at least you're going in the right direction. If you're not actively trying to challenge it, there's that's where there's a problem. Part of the part of the interesting thing about writing about race, you know, is that um, I get to do dialogues on the page that no way anybody can do in real life. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, uh, and partly, you know, outrage culture is really unhelpful in that regard. It is helpful in other ways. It, it brings attention to things and, you know, it, it focuses on injustices and, and, you know, there's, there's been, um, you know, a couple moments this year where outrage cultures had a real victory yeah. in getting attention to police shootings right. and events like that. Um, but it's, it, it's a tool. Outrage is a tool and it can't be used for everything. Okay. So this is, I'm going to get myself in trouble for talking about this because I, I think that you're right. Like the, the police shootings, social media can be great for social justice. 
it can get um, it can get people's eyes pointed in right. a certain direction. I can find myself, and with regard to police shootings, I can find myself starting to play devil's advocate in my head because the uniformity of um, uh, vo- the uniformity of voices makes me uncomfortable. Like all cops bad, and I'll, I'll start to say, well, you know, this cop obviously right. bad. Clearly, there's a systemic problem. Right. They have a really fucking hard job. Yeah, and like you're running into these situations. Like I think. You know, and then I get into conversations yeah. and it's like, I have friends who are like, I fucking hate cops. I hate yeah. all cops. And it's like, yeah, well, and unfortunately, like we need, we need to have institutions like that to, to protect yeah. us all. Right? Well, yeah, but you, like cops are easy to hate until you need one. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, I thought the McKinney, Texas uh, pool incident was oh. a good example of that. Um, so in, in like, from my perspective, I wasn't there and I didn't see all the actions or anything happening, but from watching the video, I see one cop acting like a complete jackass who's watched too many Van Damme movies, whose who's racism um, is, is internalized racism. He just, I'm sure he doesn't realize it's, that's what it is, it is not uh, an enabling him to see that he's seeing a bunch of kids in swimsuits. And instead, he's imagining himself um, fighting against basically, you know, thuggish monsters. He's, a, he's so afraid. Right. It's his, all fear. His it's fear, all fear, yeah. And it's his fantasy of, of uh, uh, you know, that you're seeing get played out. And it's so absurd because they're kids in bathing suits. You know, like uh, it, it, there's there's no way somebody can come in and say, well, they shouldn't be dressing like that, which is immediately one of the things that, that people do. It's it's very plain. Um, there's another cop in the in the video and he's talking to the the, the kids in the beginning of the video in a, in a much more calm manner. Um, and apparently he's a subordinate to the, the crazy one. Um, and you see him actually talking and being civil and holding the situation and, 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 and being protector of citizens as opposed to, you know, a, um, a, an attack dog. Strong man. Right. So, um, you know, I think both those elements are, are there. Um, and if it was every single one of them acting like the crazy dude or the corrupt, um, you know, cop who's, who's shooting people randomly – um, we would have a much, much worse situation. Sure. So we are talking about a percentage, but it doesn't take that many. But it's systemic. Right. I mean, there, there's a problem. Right. But we, that's what we, that's the challenge we're going to have to face. Uh, you know, unfortunately I'm an author, so I don't have to figure that out. I tell jokes. But, but, uh, <laughs> Come on, yeah. next book. Oh, I mean, no, but you know, no. like, it, like, I, I think I've been thinking about this because it just seems like it's been in the news cycle, like constantly. And for the good, because there's clearly a problem. We clear, like police need to address it. Like having body cams, um, I don't think it's a bad idea. It keeps people. Yeah. But I also think to myself, okay, in addition to the body cams, um, there needs to be better training. I also feel like cops need like more like emotional support. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, and I'm watching and I'm thinking we've got to pay people more. Because uh, in my head, maybe this is the capitalist part of me, it is. But I'm thinking you're only going to get so much, so much talent. At fifty thousand dollars or forty thousand dollars, yeah. If you're paying people in here a hundred thousand dollars, you're getting people who have graduate degrees in sociology and and things like that, psychology, you know, uh, all these things. You're going to get people who have been trained at a higher level. Yeah. Because right now we have positions that, um, you know, uh, there's just not as much competition for mm. because you know if things are more competitive, you, you I, I believe you would see less of this. And yeah, we need we need a different type of training. And the other thing is like, um, like stress management, stress management, but like, you know, you bring a gun to a conversation and things are going to get really difficult. And mm-hmm. that's one of the big things going on here that we, as America, it's part of a much even bigger problem, which is our, our gun situation. You have guns? No, 
No. I'm in Texas. I'm like the only one. They have guns everywhere. My <laughs> students are Don't now they give allowed. you one when you move yeah. in? <laughs> well, my students are now allowed to come to campus. I've shot guns, but only at a, at a range, but I don't, I don't own them. But, um, you know, it, it, the I lived in Britain for a bit, and the police in Britain are forced to talk things out. They don't have guns. Because they don't have guns. Right. Right? So they don't want to make things worse. Because if they create a worse situation, they've got to handle that without a gun. Right. Right. So, um, you know, there's there's a lot that we have to figure out. But, um, you know, I, I for, for my little part, I mean, I actually, I think this is the last kind of identity. To, not identity. All, all books in some level are about identity. But this is my last kind of racial identity work. And, uh, you know, um, I. What you mean? Like this is the last one you're going to write? Yeah, most likely. You've done it. You've said your piece. Yeah. You know what's weird? Like. The first book I wrote, part of the reason I didn't get anybody to write the first two books is because they weren't a, they they weren't directly about racial identity at all, and and again it was the idea of holding up the mirror, and so review the few reviewers that I did get will come and go well where's the mirror, like why what does this have to do with white racism, you know and they didn't do it um, and you know it's no it's no accident that the three books I've written out of nine books that have gotten the most attention, which is Pym and Loving Day and, and Hunting in Harlem. No, sorry, and Incognito. Yeah, yeah. Um, they all were about, in part, um, about race, and you know that's the role that's that's out there for you know for writers of color that people well, white audiences much more interested in, in if you're talking about race, you know, um, which is really like a it's it really is kind of a ghetto in the traditional sense. It's you know we've got everybody who we've got people who can talk about the roses and talk about relationships and everything. We just need you to talk about race, and if you're not talking about race, we're not really interested. So um, you know at this point, like I'm just I'm I've got nothing more to say. And if I did, it would just be to get a lot of attention in books. And um, so what are you working on now? Do you have a new book in the works? I'm working on a sci-fi trilogy. Okay, <laughs> for real. For real. That's a departure. Well, no, it's not really sci-fi. It's sci-fi in the sense of 1984 sci-fi. Okay. Like dystopian. And, you know, the thing is, like, dystopian, like, it's hard to do anything new in dystopia. It's hard to do new in an apocalyptic stuff, even though I love consuming that work. Um, no, I'm just, um, my next novel is about the, the last ticket off the, off the face of the planet. Um, the plan's not ending, but, you know, funding for getting off of it is. So, um, basically, I want to... And you know it's a trilogy already. Yeah, because like, all my book decisions were based on the idea that nobody's going to read this. And if nobody's going to read this, and if I don't <laughs> care you know, about critic tears, what am I going to do? You know? And I just thought, like, I would like to, you know, every time I want to challenge myself and push forward. And I had three different ideas, and I realized those three different ideas. Um, you know, I, Saying sci-fi trilogy, it, less of a trilogy than than um, an exploration of different ideas that are linked, you know, um, which you see a lot in film, but you don't see as much in in books. Um, but uh, do you see Ex Machina that movie? Yeah, that was yeah, pretty good. I, think, I love Ex Machina. I yeah. loved Mad Max. Yeah, you know, I haven't um, seen Mad Max yet. I got to see maybe it. The last one on Earth. So go, yeah, go. It'll be an empty theater, maybe. Yeah, then. yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, and I I love you know, but really like I love Frankenstein. Uh -huh. I love Moby Dick. And I loved Poe. I loved smart work that um, transcends and does more. I love 1984. Yeah. You know? So I've always wanted to do work like that. And um, and so I figure if uh, – other thing is like when I say I read three books, I'm not a quick writer. So it's going to probably be the next decade. You know? And um, the nice thing too is like I know that there's going to be a lot of critics who just will hate that. 
so I don't have to worry. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? like, they're going to hate it. You're free. Right. You just do whatever you want now. But I think people are going to, I mean, you say you, you can write as if there's no, no one's going to read it, but I think I'm just going to guess that's not going to be the case for you from go, you know, going forward. Well, thank you. Let's hope, let's hope you're right. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, I know you got to go. It's been great having you over. I appreciate you making the effort to stop by and talk, and uh, I congratulate you on all the success and wish you well on the trilogy. Thanks so much. This has been fun. Thank you. Okay, guys, that's Matt Johnson. Go get his novel. It's called Loving Day. It's available now from Spiegel and Grau, and it is uh, all the rage. Cover of the New York Times Book Review. You can find Matt online at mattjohnson.info. That's Matt with one T. He's also on Twitter. His handle over there is at Matt underscore Johnson. At Matt underscore Johnson. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go get the app, the Other People app, available uh, for free wherever apps are available. Get that app and then sign up for premium. Get access to everything. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Critique me. Share a story from your personal life. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I got the crib assembled. Baby's coming. I'm not going to be sleeping. It's going to be a chaotic rest of 2015 from a uh, sleep deprivation perspective. Now, sleep deprivation is nothing new to me. I've done it before with a kid. I don't tend to be a great sleeper anyway, so I think you guys have heard me in various states of sleep deprivation, but you know, the immediate three to five months after a baby is born are particularly intense. I, I have never done this show in that mode, so I don't know what's going to happen. What am I going to say into this microphone in that state? I could come unhinged. Stay tuned. Please remember that Elizabeth Barrett Browning was addicted to morphine and that Aldous Huxley once said, quote, the proper study of mankind is books. Uh, That's it for now. Thanks again to uh, you guys for listening. Thanks to Matt Johnson for coming over. Go get his book, Loving Day. Check out his work in total. And uh, I'll be back soon. I'll have another episode. I'll talk to you unless I'm in the uh, delivery room. At any, you know, I'm on call at this point. It could happen at any at any moment. Really, we're in that window now. I hope it. You know, I hope we have a little bit of time. I'm hoping for late July, at the earliest. But I'm looking at my wife, and I'm like, uh, you know, how much bigger can this baby get? Not that she's. I mean, she's got a big belly. She's a pregnant woman. I don't mean to uh, be rude. I'm just saying. Where else are we going to go with this at this point? It's getting to the point where the baby's just got to come out. Knock on wood.